live from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sartre, and coming up, we're talking about, hey, oh, man, the galaxy clusters were in the couch cushions the whole time. We should have looked there first. And, of course, taking listener questions about all things in the universe because that's what this show is about. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, so call 888-581-0708 to join the conversation. You can also leave voicemails from around the world on our website directly, spaceradioshow.com. And in today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about what we know and what we don't know about time. But first, the news. Hello, space fans. Welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Ohio State. And for the next half hour, your agent to the stars. Got an exciting show for today on Space Radio where we talk about all the beautiful things in this beautiful universe. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern here in Studio A of WCBE Radio Columbus. So call 888-581-0708. You can also leave a voicemail at that number anytime. And for all international listeners, you can leave a voicemail directly on the website go to spaceradioshow.com and right there there'll be a button you hit a button and you start talking and we get the talkings and then you get talkings back at you get those questions in and we will make this show happen together you can also follow along directly on our live streams go to youtube and twitch you can find those links also on spaceradioshow.com and you can tune in live with the Space Cadets watching now from Kempner, Texas, Alaska, Bavava, Slovenia, Lagrange, and Wellwyn Garden City, UK. That is not a mythical land, that is an actual place on Earth. We'll take questions that you send there too. Seriously, folks, I've only prepped 10 minutes to show material tops. Let's get those calls in. Before I start taking calls and questions, though, I wanted to cover a little bit of news that I caught recently. And this was a very, very intriguing headline. And when I see an intriguing headline, I need to dig in deeper. The headline is, a third of all galaxy clusters have gone unnoticed. Now, a galaxy cluster, why? like who cares if they've gone unnoticed? So a galaxy cluster... We, in the solar system, we live in a galaxy. A galaxy is home to a few hundred billion stars, plus or minus. Galaxies themselves are members of larger things that we call groups. And some of these galaxies are even members of even bigger things that we call clusters. Clusters are like dense beehives of galaxies. We're talking hundreds up to thousands of galaxies all crammed into a very small volume. Small cosmologically. Don't it's, it's They're large. They're like 4 million light years across. But that is kind of small. And these galaxies are swishing all around and buzzing all around. And they are, galaxy clusters are, the largest gravitationally bound structures in the universe. They are held together by their own gravity, just like the Earth is, just like the Sun is, just like the Milky Way is. Galaxy clusters are held together by their own gravity. They are gravitationally bound. They are glued to themselves. And they are the largest of such things in the universe. There are larger things in the universe, but those are not gravitationally bound. They're not actual structures. They're just happenstance arrangements, if you will. Galaxy clusters are very, very large. We're talking a thousand trillion times the mass of the sun. You know, somewhere around there for a typical galaxy cluster. 
So they're big. They're made of lots of galaxies. They're heavy. They're bright. This is why the headline is intriguing. How did we miss a third of them? How did we miss a third of some of the biggest things in the universe? You'd think that'd be like the first thing that we would count all of would be the big stuff, right? But it turns out, turns out, according to a recent analysis and study, which of course is subject to review, may not be exact, et cetera, et cetera. According to this latest study led by Roger Close of the Jeremiah Horrocks Institute at the University of Central Lancashire, who led the work. So they took a galaxy survey, like a map of our universe that mapped all the positions of all sorts of galaxies in our universe. And they went hunting for clusters like, OK, some galaxies are just, you know, blah, scattered around. Some are members of clusters and they developed a new algorithm, a new computer algorithm to hunt for those little knots, those little dense bits, those clusters of galaxies without regard for what the galaxies were made of or what colors or types they were. It's just looking for knots, looking for knots, looking for knots. And it found a bunch of potential clusters that hadn't been found before. And these clusters tend to have dimmer galaxies, fewer galaxies, more spirals, just harder to spot by eye. But this is exactly why we have computer algorithms to do things that human beings can't do. So is that the end? I don't know. We'll find out if those are actual galaxy clusters, but time will tell. That's the latest and greatest when it comes to space. Let's have a little conversation. All right, to start today's show, we have a voicemail left on spaceradioshow.com. That's right, spaceradioshow.com. You can directly leave a voicemail. You don't even have to get up off the computer or away from your phone. It just happens like magic from anywhere around the world. And we're ready. Greg, are you ready? Thumbs up from Greg. That was an enthusiastic thumbs up. I love that hustle. Greg, play the tape. Terry Crook here. If time is seen by an observer to slow down as an object is moving faster to the observer. It begs the question, does time appear to speed up to the observer as the moving object is traveling slower relative to the observer? And if so, what happens to time? What is the rate of time when the observer is truly stopped and is there such a concept as having no velocity in this universe that is a fantastic question terry we're talking about relativity we're talking about the relationship between space and time we're talking about when things speed up clocks slow down and and what's what's relative and what's not so i'll start with the question of is there such a thing as absolute stillness in the universe? Is there a place like is there is there can you be in a state where you are perfectly 100% still? The answer is yes and no because of course those are the answers. There is no such thing in our universe as absolute rest. Absolute rest. There is no frame of reference in the universe at which you are entirely at rest because, and this is the relativity part of special relativity, all measurements are relative to other things. 
all measurements are relative to other things. You can be at rest, you can be perfectly still in comparison to something else. So I am sitting at a table. I am at rest with respect to the table. If I were to ask the table, hey table, is Paul moving around? The table would say, no, you're sitting right there. You are at rest according to me. Therefore, I am at rest relative to the table. Am I at rest relative to the sun? No, I am moving relative to the sun. I would ask the sun, hey sun, is Paul moving around? The sun would say, yes. The sun has a high pitched voice, okay? Just deal with it. The sun would say, yes, Paul's moving. You are not at rest relative to me. All motion is relative. All motion is described in terms of what other observers see and other observers can and will disagree. The table says I'm not moving. The sun says I am. Who's right? Both of them. Because they each have their own perspective on what is motion. There is no such thing as absolute motion in our universe. It's all relative motion. And once you add in things like time dilation, the fact that moving clocks can run fast or slow, everything that I just said still applies. A clock will run slow according to an observer. If I'm standing still, you know, according to a table, and I see a rocket blast by me, that rocket is moving relative to me. According to me, that rocket is moving, and that rocket's clock will run slow. According to the rocket, I'm the one who's moving in the opposite direction. According to the rocket, my clock is running slow. And you're like, isn't that a paradox? Like, how can we both be right? The answer is all measurements are relative in our universe. All measurements of time and space are relative. I'm right according to me. The rocket is right according to the rocket. And the entire mathematical apparatus of special relativity, all the equations, all the forms, all the structures are to give us the tools to translate from one observer to another. So if one observer gives one result and another observer gives another result, how can we connect them? Special relativity is a glue. Special relativity is what allows us to transform from one reference frame to another throughout the universe. No one will agree, but at least we can get all the bookkeeping right. And we know how to translate from one reference frame to another. So I hope that answered your question, Terry. That was a very, very fun, wonderful question. You asked it on spaceradioshow.com directly using the web interface, which is cool and fancy and neat. And you should try it. You can also call 888-581-0708. Telephones are also cool in this world. And you can leave voicemails there too. I'm Paul Sutter. This is Space Radio. This show is brought to you by you. Go to patreon.com slash pmsutter. There is something we can all agree on absolutely in this universe and that this show lives on your contributions. Go to patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn more. And I'll see you after the break. You'll never be as young as you are today, so don't waste another moment not attending to the most important brand in your life, You Inc. Join me, Rhea Grife, Saturday at 2.30 p.m. to hear Joni Kalem, musician, singer, songwriter, teacher, and how she creates music about ability and how she teaches people of all ages to create concert conversations. That's You Inc. 
every Saturday at 2.30 p.m. on Central Ohio's NPR station 90.5 WCBE. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We've got more Space Cadet questions lined up for the next section, but you can add your voice by calling 888-581-0708. You can also leave a voicemail directly on our website anywhere from the world, from your computer, from your smartphone. Go to spaceradioshow.com. And it's just right there. You'll see it. It will say record a voicemail. And you hit a button and you record and it's done. That's spaceradioshow.com for the links. Now, we've got some questions from the Space Cadets. Starting with Brian Street on YouTube. Has the first mission for the James Webb Space Telescope changed? I heard it was the cosmic microwave background once, then switched over to exoplanets. Like, what's the deal? So the James Webb Space Telescope was supposed to launch like I don't know last year the year before something like that it's only half a decade late or whatever and only half a billion dollars over budget you know whatever eventually it'll get up I suppose someday we got to at least try to launch it someday and what are its science missions what are its science goals the mission the defined mission for the James Webb Space Telescope hasn't changed in a very long time because the science goals inform the engineering like what do we put in this thing what do we want to do how big of a mirror do we want what kind of wavelength what kind of circuitry in the back uh, how often is this gonna have to move around and look at different positions of the sky you start with the science goals and then that takes you to the engineering and the technology to actually package it together and then that informs what it's made so once that's set, once the blueprints are made and, and they're actually making things and fabricating things and screwing things together, then it's set. That is the science mission. That is what this thing was born to do. And the James Webb Space Telescope has a few different science missions. One is to hunt for exoplanets. It's going to take very, very detailed images and data of potentially habitable worlds. It's going to take a list of candidate worlds acquired by other missions, do more detailed follow-ups to try to get at, like, are there any biosignatures? Are there any signs of life on these worlds? So it's going to hunt for planets. It's going to hunt for the birth of stars. This instrument is actually an infrared telescope. An infrared telescope for the most part, so it's going to look for dusty things, quiet things, dark things, secret things. It's also going to hunt for the first stars and galaxies to appear in our universe. We have absolutely no images, no pictures, no data from this epoch of when, when the universe was about 500 million years old, when the first stars, the first galaxies, the first black holes, the first all of it started to come online. James Webb is designed to hunt for that. And there are quite a few other science missions. And of course, there'll be new opportunities. There'll be competitive processes. So if you have a cool idea for the James Webb, you can submit. Good luck with that because, you know, it's kind of been delayed. And so there's a backlog, but you can try anyway. Great question, Brian. Another question. Boom. Mehmet Ramadan over on YouTube. Our universe is created by intelligent beings. This is a question that comes up a lot in cosmology. Cosmology is the study of the whole entire universe. And we start talking in cosmology about things like Big Bang and expansion and starting points and ending points. And you're like, okay, 
13.8 billion years ago, our entire observable universe was the size of a peach and at a temperature of, you know, a quadrillion degrees. We actually know that based on evidence. But then who put the peach there? Right? It's the natural question. It's the natural question. Who made the thing that led to all the things like the universe? That question. It's a very powerful very important question. It's not a scientific question, at least not yet. We don't understand the earliest moments of our universe. We flat out don't. We flat out don't. If we get an answer to that, then you know, we'll, we'll examine that. But until then, it's a very powerful question. I don't want to disregard the question. It's also not a scientific question. It's a philosophical question. It's a theological question. You can address that question with faith if that's, you know, how you feel. You can start to tackle it with philosophy, with reasoned arguments, trying to play around with this idea of like, what, it, what does it mean for things to exist versus not exist? Does everything need a start, right? If something started our universe, then what started that? Like, do you, do you cut it off? Does it go out to infinity, et cetera, et cetera? Even if there's an infinite chain of universes, how is there such a thing as an infinite chain of universes rather than nothing at all? Who made that choice? Does that kind of question even make sense? This is a very powerful, very deep question. Not a scientific one, at least not yet. Moving on for the last question in this segment, Astro B, Space Cadet, loyal Space Cadet, asking, if you were at the edge of the universe and looked up into the sky, what would you see? That's very funny. I was at an event, a book event in Cincinnati last night, and the exact same question came up. Exact same. Like, if I were to go to the edge of the universe, what would I see? You know, there, would there be a wall? Like, just a blank spot? What's going on? Would the stars and galaxies just stop? And then, like, I could just wave into the void, and the void would wave back to me. The universe has no edge. The universe has no edge. You can't go to the edge of the universe because the universe has no edge. Now, there is an edge to our observable bubble. There is a limit to what we can see because the universe is only so old and light can only go so fast. So a certain amount of universe has only been revealed to us. So there is an edge there. It's like 41 billion light years away. But imagine, just imagine if we were to freeze the expansion of the universe, that's another complicating factor. You're to freeze that and you're getting your rocket ship, pack your bags and just for 41 billion light years, you pick a galaxy way, that one, second galaxy to the right, straight on for 40 billion mornings. And then you'll get there. And you unpack your bags, you get out your binoculars and your telescopes, and what do you see? You see pretty much exactly what we see. It'll be different galaxies. Oh, there's not a spiral over there. That's an elliptical over there. Oh, that one's shifted a little bit. It's a different arrangement. But you will see a universe filled with galaxies. And you will have an observable limit. That's 41 billion light years away. And you pick out a direction. You go to that limit. You travel on over there. You check it out. You look around. Exact same thing. Our universe has no edge. It also has no center. No center. No edge. Just galaxies. Just galaxies. Just stuff. There is a limit to what we can see, but you go out to that limit, that new center, no, new vantage point, has a limit of what it can see. Some of it includes the universe that we can currently see from our vantage point. Some of it is brand new and it will forever be unobservable to us. You can go it's like chasing the end of a rainbow <laughs> you can just keep going but you're never quite 
going to get to the edge of the universe? Fantastic questions from the Space Cadets. We're almost out of time today on Space Radio. But before we go, it's time for the Blue Shift. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio. And this is the Blue Shift, my opportunity to get just a little bit closer to you. And it's wonderful we had that question from Mehmet earlier about is the universe created by intelligent beings? And I got an opportunity to talk about the differences between scientific and non-scientific questions. This isn't a discussion about the validity of questions, uh, but, but it's a discussion about which domains do certain questions sit in. And there are some topics that are kind of... Uh, uh, multidisciplinary, a little bit cross-cultural, if you will. And one of those topics is time, the nature of time. This is such a rich topic. And when it comes to time, there are answers you can give about time through the lens of physics, right? You can talk about relativity. You can talk about entropy. You can talk about the arrow of time. You can talk about disorder. You can talk about the relationship between time and space. You can talk about the relativity of experiences of time. You can talk about clocks moving faster and slower. You can talk about the age of the universe, right? You can talk about time since the Big Bang. So there are things we know about time through physics, but there's more to it than that. Right? There's the human perception of time. How do our brains, from all of our senses, construct a narrative of time? That's a very cool neuroscience problem. It's a very cool psychological problem. How do we tell this story in our heads through our lives? It's a very philosophical question, right? Why is time so different from space? Even though they're united, in this four-dimensional fabric called space-time, space, left, right, up, down, forward, backwards, acts one way. Time acts totally differently. Why? We don't know. We don't know. That's a very philosophical question. It might become a scientific question someday, but right now it's a philosophical question. I always try to remind myself, and so hence I'm reminding you by through the act of reminding myself, not all questions can be answered through the scientific method, and that's okay. That doesn't reduce their validity, that doesn't reduce their importance, and that doesn't reduce their value. What does, however, increase value is going on an all-stars party to Joshua Tree National Park at the end of June. We've got some of the greatest internet science communicators the world has to offer congregating in one place, also including me, and we're going to party in the desert. It's going to be stargazing. And it's at a great resort where there's like massages and hiking and golfing and all sorts of cool stuff during the day. So go to astrotours.co. That's astrotours.co for a link. And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter. And this show is brought to you by the Ohio State University Department of Astronomy. Learn more at astronomy.osu.edu. This show is also brought to you by lovely, lovely you. Visit patreon.com slash PM Sutter to learn how you can contribute. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing the beautiful, beautiful Greg Mobius. Nancy Graziano for wrangling the space cadets. Dan Michalka for being awesome. And all the fine crew at WCBE Radio for making this show possible. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Call 888-581-0708. You can also leave a voicemail directly on our website. You also find links to our YouTube and Twitch live streams. That's spaceradioshow.com for all the info you could possibly need about this universe. And of course, thanks again, Earthlings, for listening. See you next week. 
And remember, science is for sharing. End of transmission. Thank <laughs> you.